This morning we come in our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews to chapter 11 and verse 1. Our text is Hebrews chapter 11, and I would direct your attention to the first verse in that chapter. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This morning we're focusing on the first half of this verse. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Well, this morning, as you know, we come to the most famous chapter in the book of Hebrews, and it is famous for good reason. And we will not be rushing through it in our consideration of it. You know it well, you know the account that it gives, <clears throat> the catalog of Old Testament saints <clears throat> and the testimony uh, to their faith. But I want us to be clear from the onset. I want us to be crystal clear. Hebrews 11 is not a museum for us to visit over which we ooh and ah at some of the great exploits of the faith of God's people in the past. It is not a museum. It is given to us as a model and as a motivation for our own personal and present reality. This is why God has recorded it for us. Indeed, you would do well to mark where you are this morning in relationship to the Lord and the exercise of faith, to note it, and then to look with some measure of expectation at what will be found at the conclusion of our study of, of this particular chapter of God's Word. He's given us this chapter in order that by His grace and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we might experience the same vital faith that upheld these remarkable witnesses that are recorded here in these words. So we come to verse 1, and here we have a chapter break that is somewhat awkward uh, because it flows immediately out of what we find at the end of the chapter. You'll remember that in chapter 10 we have this exhortation and encouragement to perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, which is going to be carry us all the way through to the, the end of this book. And yet the question comes, how? How is it conceivable? How is it possible that amidst all of the afflictions and trials and setbacks and battles and war that the Lord's people are engaged in, how can they possibly persevere? And the answer is given to us at the end of chapter 10. Living by faith. Living by faith is how the Lord's people persevere. And so chapter 11 then turns directly to that point, to this whole theme of what it means to be living by faith. And so we come to verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. What we have here is not a definition of faith in the way that you might find children in your shorter catechism or in a theological textbook. It's not a definition so much as a description. It's a description 
of faith, how it operates, what it, what it does. And really, we're provided that with in verse, in verse 1. And then the whole remainder of chapter 11, from verse 2 to verse 40, we have the outworking of this in the life and in the testimony and experience of God's people. But verse 1 is so incredibly familiar to most of you that it will roll off your tongue. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You could say it nearly, some of you, in your sleep. It's so familiar to us. And yet sometimes that which is most familiar to us can be the least understood. And yet understanding what verse 1 means is absolutely essential for appreciating all that the rest of chapter 11 describes for us about the exercise of this faith. And it's for that reason that we're slowing up a little and considering uh, the only the first half of, of this, this verse. It's not, not as easy as it is to quote. It's not immediately obvious in, in some respects. And so we need clarity in terms of the explanation of what it means in order that we can appreciate how it is exemplified in all of the testimonies that follow in chapter 11. So you'll notice it consists of two parts, right? Faith is substance and faith is the evidence. And then connected to that, it's the substance particularly of things hoped for, and it is the evidence particularly of things not seen. And so we'll be considering these two things separately in order that we might appreciate how they're held together. So three things this morning, and we'll be a little briefer on the first two points in order to give adequate time on the, the third. But we begin, first of all, with saving faith. So first of all, saving faith. The text says, now faith. But immediately we're faced with a question. What faith? And this is a question as relevant as ever in our present day because people speak of all kinds of faith, right? People will say, well, you just need to have faith. And it's this, it's this uh, ambiguous, kind of empty, vacuous concept, have faith. Or people speak about they speak gibberish when they speak of having faith in yourself, having faith in medicine. Even the Psalms warn us about trusting in princes, trusting in horses, trusting in the legs of a man, and so on and so forth. So what faith? Notice that it says now faith could be translated but faith, which means that it's drawing on what has just been stated. And so if you look back to the, the previous words in chapter 10, the second half of verse 39, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Aha, well, this orients us, doesn't it? This, this makes things very clear. We are talking about saving faith. We're talking about saving faith here. Those that believe to the saving of the soul. And saving faith has to be distinguished from its spiritual counterfeit. So you think, for example, and some of this will be familiar territory to you, you think of historical faith, right? Historical faith is uh, those who affirm propositional truths within the Word of God. It could be Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants. It doesn't matter. They would say, well, the, the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, we believe that there is one God, and there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that there is 
a triune God. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. We believe that he died on the cross, that he was buried, raised, and ascended to heaven. Protestants would say, we believe in the doctrine of justification by faith, that this is a description of how the gospel works in bringing a person into acceptance uh, before God through the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and so on. And yet you can have a knowledge of all of these truths and not have saving faith. You can have historical faith, right? You know the facts about the truth of, of God's word. And this is akin to the faith of devils. James says, you, you believe that there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. That's historical faith. You can have faith in miracles. In the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, there were countless, hundreds, thousands of people, and they saw him raise the dead. They saw him give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. They saw him deliver those who were possessed of demons. They saw him take a handful of fish and loaves and feed 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on the other. They all saw it. They all believed that the miracle had taken place, and yet not all of them had saving faith. Indeed, the greatest miracle of all is what, children? The greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were those who saw the resurrected Christ. Matthew 28 says, but some doubted. Not all had saving faith. Right? So faith in miracles is not the same as saving faith. And we have temporary faith. Right? Jesus describes this in the parable of the sower. He sows seed and you have those who, who spring up with joy initially. Right? It appears good initially. They spring up with joy and then the sun comes and the heat and all of that are those where the seed is sowed. And then eventually you have the thorns and briars that come up and choke it out, the pleasures of this present world, the deceitfulness of, of riches. So in both cases, right, there's an there's a appearance of faith, but it's only temporary. There's no root. There's no root for that faith. And therefore, it withers. Here we're talking about true, sound, saving faith. And saving faith is something that is supernatural. It's supernatural. Why? Because faith itself is the gift of God. God gives faith out of his own resources, right? Faith is, saving faith is outside the ability of natural man. He can't do calculations. He can't muster stuff within his own being and drum up genuine saving faith. No, it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is God who gives faith. He's the one who gives a new nature and a new heart and the ability to see and believe and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. And so the source is God himself. It's supernatural. And the foundation of saving faith is what? It is the revealed will of God. The foundation of saving faith is the revealed will of God. How shall they believe if they don't hear? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is the means through which the Lord brings about faith. Faith lays hold upon the word. And so it's, it is grounded, if you will, on the bedrock of Holy Scripture. 
So faith is not just dreams. I think, you know, someday I believe I'm going to be an astronaut. Or it's not fancies. It's not our intuition. It's not anything that comes uh, out of man or is in man or comes from man. Saving faith comes from the Lord, rooted in in his word. And the object of faith is God himself. We're to believe in God. We're to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've said so often, we look through the window of the word of promise and by faith behold the promiser. Behold God himself. Behold the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In other words, faith looks to the faithfulness of God. And everything else that is revealed about his goodness and mercy and justice and holiness and so on and so forth. It rests in the veracity of God, in the truthfulness of God, who cannot lie. And so the object is is God himself. In fact, we'll see this later on in chapter 11, verse 27. Here's Moses, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him. Who is invisible. The object of his faith was Christ. The object of his faith was the Lord himself. Right? Faith beholds the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that means that makes something abundantly clear from the start, doesn't it? We're talking about saving faith here, and we see that you can't have faith, you can't have the faith of those described in Hebrews 11 without the God of those who are described in Hebrews 11. You'll never have their faith without their God. We need a saving interest and a saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ himself and all that is revealed of the glory of God in him. Faith itself doesn't bring anything to the table. Faith doesn't contribute anything. We speak of the power of faith and the strength of faith and so on and so forth. But what we ought to be speaking of is the power of God, the strength of God. Faith receives. Faith lays hold upon. Faith rests in all that God himself is. Strong faith is, in fact, faith that is exercised in a strong God in the glory of God himself. And so faith knows the truth and affirms it from the heart and transfers all confidence to the Lord. Does all of this, saving faith. Do you think of how it's described in terms of the Christian life? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. It's actually quoting from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. What do, we, what do you see there? You can, you can see all these pieces coming together. The believer knows that God cares. Indeed, he cares more than we'll ever care, more than anyone else will ever care about the things that we consider heavy, the things that we consider difficult. We know that he cares. The believer is absolutely persuaded of it. In the exercise of faith, they're affirming it from their heart. And that, that transforms them 
in, in bringing them to place all of their confidence in him. It's because we know that he cares that we therefore cast our cares upon him. Or transferring all of our confidence and all of the concerns that we have to him. Leaning, as it were, upon our beloved. Now faith. It is saving faith that we are considering. It is saving faith that is being set before us in this text and in all that follows throughout the remainder of this chapter. But then secondly, we have faith and hope. So you'll notice it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. So we have two parts. Faith is the substance, and that would be the property of faith, if you will, or we could even say the effect of faith. And the things hoped for are the object. And so that you have these two parts, and we're going to deal with the second part first, the things hoped for, because I believe it will help us better understand the first part, what it means when it says faith is the substance. So the hope, it says, uh, excuse me, of things hoped for, right? There's a relationship between faith and hope. The things hoped for is a reference to something in the future, right? Things hoped for is an obvious reference to something that is in either the near or even distant future from us. And so it's not, it's, it's, it's something that we uh, do not yet have in itself. Something not yet in themselves something that hasn't become a present reality yet. So this is the nature of hope, right? Hope is expectation. We're expecting something to happen. It's confident expectation in what we're expecting to come. So it's only, hope can only ever be a reference to the future. Because when it comes, then we no longer have hope. When we've received it and we have it and so on, then we no longer have need of hope. So this, this is what the Bible itself says in, in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? So if you already got it in your hand, you're not still hoping for it in the present hour. Right? So faith is, or the, these things hoped for are something that is, is future. But faith is something bigger than that, right? Because faith is not confined, like hope is, to something that is future. Faith is broader than that. Faith, is also, faith also has reference to the past. And you'll see that immediately in verse, in verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen are not made of the things which do appear, right? It's by faith through the exercise of faith that we understand these things from the distant past. The origin of the universe and of creation and so on and so forth. Faith also has relevance for the present. Current faith in current unfoldings of providence and in the Lord and promises and so on. And faith also has reference to the future. So we, we believe the things that the Lord has said are, are yet to unfold, are yet to come. But you see that faith is bigger than hope in this respect. 
We can go further and say that faith is actually more fundamental than hope. Faith is more foundational, if you will, than hope. Faith is the more basic grace from which other graces flow. And so faith is what fuels hope. You can't have hope without faith. But faith fuels hope, right? It undergirds it. Or to think the other way around, hope flows from, from faith. And this will be, I think, even clearer when we understand faith as the substance of things hoped for. And so faith comes to the word of God. It looks in the word. And in this case here at the beginning of verse one, faith looks in the word and it sees the future. And in seeing the future, it is given hope for all that is yet to come, or it gives confident expectation, if you will, in the certainty of what God has promised. So when, you know, I've often said hope is not something, it's not used in the way that it is used today. Well, are you going to go to the store? Well, I hope so. Are you going to go to the, you know, church meeting next week? Well, I hope so. And that means I'm not sure, but I really want to. Right? Hope in the Bible is always a confident expectation. And you can see how that confidence in the expectation is undergirded by the exercise of faith. Faith is what strengthens that. And so the point here, though, so we don't get too far away. The point here is that things hoped for are a reference to something that hangs out there. It hangs out there in the future. It's not present here and now, yet. It's not present here and now, yet. You say, okay, well, pastor, what are these things? What are the things hoped for? What is he, what is he referring to? Uh, the, 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 the most basic answer would be, I mean, this is applicable to anything and everything that the Bible reveals about what is yet to come. So the things hoped for could be all-encompassing in terms of all that the Bible has revealed about what is yet to come in our life, in the future, and so on. But if you think more specifically about our context here, Hebrews has been giving you the answer for quite a long time now. God has been providing it in this very book. You know, the things hoped for include the promised help that God is going to deliver in the midst of all of our trials, that the Lord will never leave us, that the Lord will never forsake us in the days to come and all that that may entail for us, right? It, it, it speaks as well about the pardon for sins in the future as well as in the present. So things hoped for include the acquittal that the believer will have before the, the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day, that open declaration of pardon before angels and men from the mouth of God himself received by him. It includes things like the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It includes the eternal inheritance of which we've heard much and will hear far, far more in what follows. The things hoped for are that eternal inheritance that the Lord has pledged and promised to his people, the crown of righteousness, which will be given to all those who wait for his coming. It includes the glory of heaven and being with Christ and sinless 
and all of the joy and jubilation that that will, that that will include. And we could go on and on and on. Right? Bring back into your thoughts all that we've been hearing about what God has promised regarding these things that are hoped for. Clearly, you see, these are not fancies. These are not dreams. We're talking about what God has revealed, what God has said himself about the future. Faith has interest in these things. Faith fuels hope in these future things. And so we have the relationship of faith and hope. But then thirdly, and we need to spend a little more time here, faith as the substance. So it's here that we begin to trip for most of us, right? We come to this passage now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And we get to that word substance and we begin to trip up. And that's understandable, actually, because the word substance is an abstract word. Indeed, the Greek word that is translated here is an abstract word, somewhat technical word, even in the Greek. And so we need to be clear in our interpretation of what this means in order that we might be pointed in our application of all that it demands. We need to know what it means before we know what it means uh, for, for us. And so let's take a little time here. We need to move from what is initially cloudy and we need to pull back some layers. Faith is the substance. We need to drill down a little here and we're gonna do this together. And as we do, what is initially cloudy becomes clearer and clearer and clearer to us. So if you begin even sitting on the surface with the English word substance, which I think is actually an excellent choice that our translators have used here. Some have moved more to the interpretation of it rather than, than sticking close to what, uh, even though it's an abstract word, what, what, it, what it really means. So if you think of the English word substance, right, it derives from the Latin substance, to stand under. Right? That's, that's kind of the root, the etymological root for, for substance, to stand under. In other words, it's describing the ground. It's describing, you know, being grounded or grounded, grounding. And that's, that's fair enough. Faith is the ground of, of things hoped for. So it's helpful. But there's more than that. Something that has substance has being and existence. So... Again, we're, we're kind of in abstract territory. But something that has substance has being and existence. So you could say, still using big words at this point, faith substantiates or faith gives a living existence to our hopes. We're getting closer. Faith gives a living existence to our hopes. It gives substance in that sense to our hopes. And here I think we're closer, right? This is where... Um, this, this conveys the idea of confidence, of, of confidence, of faith being confident in, it is the confidence of things hoped for. And indeed, our, our Bible, our translation of the Bible, translates the same Greek word as confidence earlier in the book. So in chapter 3, verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast, unto the end. So the idea here is we, we, we are sure of the things that we are expecting 
And this too is true, and I think somewhat helpful, but we need to go even a little further. If you stick with this idea that substance gives a present existence to our hopes, we're in a good place. Substance gives, gives a present existence to, to our hopes. And so think with me. He's speaking about the things hoped for, right? The future, things in the future have no present existence. They have no present being. They aren't yet. They haven't happened yet. We don't possess them yet. They're not ours yet, right? The future has no present existence or, or being in that sense. And what it's saying is that faith gives it present existence. Faith gives those things in the future that are hoped for a present being. In other words, faith brings the future into the very present, right? It, it seizes, you know, objects that are, that are far off in the future and makes them a present reality right here and right now, right? Brings them into our present possession, if you will. And so as a consequence, faith produces the same effect as if these things were actually experienced. Faith actually produces the same effect as if we were actually experiencing them. In other words, faith is the substance. Faith is, is able to say that truly it's as good as already done. It's those things in the future are as good as already accomplished, as having already come. And so in that sense, it does convey this idea of confidence, right? Of confidence in the things that are, that are hoped for. Faith gives a present reality, a present power, if you will, in the soul, as if these things were done. Let me give you an illustration. So for the children, especially here, to help, help bring you along with, with what this passage is teaching us. So children, think to yourself. Your mom comes to you in the morning, and she says, Yesterday I went to the grocery store, and I bought a box of, pop, uh, of um, popsicles. I bought a box of popsicles, and I stuck them in the freezer. And after you finish all your schoolwork, and you do all your chores, and so on and so forth, I'm going to give you a popsicle. Right? So, children, you think to yourself, okay, you've heard all that your mom has said. The popsicle is not in your mouth. It's in the freezer. You're not tall enough to climb up and open the freezer to even see the box of popsicles that are there. However, you trust your mom. Your mom said she went to the store, got popsicles that are in the freezer, and she's going to give you one later. And so you trust your mom doesn't lie to you, and so you believe her that this is actually going to be the case. And what happens, at least when I was a child, and perhaps with you too, children, you already begin to enjoy the popsicle. You know, you're thinking about it, you're doing your math, or you're doing other things, and it's a hot South Carolina summer day, and you can, you can almost feel the coolness of the popsicle in your mouth, right? You can taste the juice that you're going to suck out of that popsicle. Your mouth may even begin to water as you are thinking about getting 
that popsicle and so on, right? You're already entering into the enjoyment of the popsicle because you're so confident that it's coming in a short time. How much more with your heavenly father? How much more with your heavenly father? After all, mom can forget. You know, mom can make mistakes. Mom can be wrong. And, you know, she thought she got a box of popsicles and it's a box of broccoli or something else. Right? That's never, ever the truth. That's never possible with God. How much more with your heavenly father? Right? When the Lord himself says, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. And this is what will come in the future, whether tomorrow or next week or 100 years from now or on the last day. This is what's going to come. You can be absolutely confident, utterly certain that this is the truth. God can't lie. God can't make mistakes. God can't be wrong. What you read in black and white in your Bible, the promises that are furnished with you, furnished for you, are words that are absolutely impeccable. They're infallible. They're unchangeable, right? They cannot err because of who God himself is. And so how much more with our Heavenly Father can we be absolutely certain of all these things? And if absolutely certain of them, enabled by faith which sees them to begin to enter into the reality of them, even in the present hour, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Perhaps to clarify even further, you can picture in your mind's eye what is in the future. You can picture kind of what it's going to be like walking in the office tomorrow. You can picture, you know, what you're going to have for breakfast. You can picture who you're going to see. You can picture in your mind's eye what is future. Faith is more than that. That's not all we're talking about. Faith is not just the imaginary appearance, but a real substance of things hoped for. As though it was already, we were already in full possession of them. As though we were already in full possession of them. In other words, faith unites the subject with the object. Again, you're going to see this in chapter 11. So, for example, in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. So they don't have the fulfillment of the promises. They don't have the thing that was promised itself, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They had seen them. And they had been persuaded of them. And they embraced them. And it transformed them. They lived as if it was so. The Lord says, I will be your God. And I will be your inheritance. And I have an eternal inheritance that I have laid up in heaven for you. And you are going to enter into the fullness of my glory. And they so embraced it. Faith was able, the substance of things hoped for, to bring it into such a living reality that it transformed their lives. And they lived as if it were so. They lived as, as pilgrims 
and as sojourners in the world. Right here, right now. They're saying, we belong to another country. We have another home. There is another place that is ours. This, this place and all the circumstances that we're, we're involved in, this is not permanent. I'm passing through. And so they lived under the reality. They, they thought of themselves as sojourners and aliens and foreigners and pilgrims in this world. And they, they operated in their daily life as if they were from another world. This is what faith does. It actually transforms the heart of the Christian, right? You can think in terms of the promise, which you have in the word. Think of it as, in some ways as the title, the deed and title. You know, it's put into your hands. I've got the paper to prove it. This is mine. Faith actually takes the promise and brings it into possession. We reap good things before they are. Right? We're taken out of this world while still in it. We're exalted above this world while yet under it. So that the believer, through the exercise of faith, can be in a position where there is no more doubt of the existence of these future things that are hoped for than if we were knowing them in our present experience. We can be as confident as if fulfilled already, as if we had them already in hand. That is faith as the substance of things that are hoped for. That confidence. And what that means is this. The word of God, think of two sides. The word of God provides us with the objective foundation for our faith. We noted that earlier. The word of God is the objective foundation for our faith. The word of God is outside of us. However, we're seeing here that faith has a function, if you will, as a subjective foundation inside the believer, right? Standing ground. Faith supplies a sure support in its exercise within the soul of the believer because it rests on the infallible promise in the word of God. And so this teaches us, doesn't it, that faith actually takes us out of ourselves. People talk about faith in yourself. What gibberish? I mean, this is pure, unadulterated nonsense. Faith actually, saving faith, takes us out of ourselves and it places everything, ourselves included, in God's hand. And so the Lord tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for. It gives present, living existence to things that are hoped for. Present living existence to things that are hoped for. Now we've described all of that. But now we have to recognize that there are degrees of faith, aren't there? The Bible talks about, O ye of little faith. Speaks about those who have strong faith. Those who have small faith. Those who have great faith speaks about the increase of faith, and so on and so forth. There are degrees of faith. And in addition to being various degrees of faith within the exercise of the, the Christian, there are a wide array of attacks, right, from various different angles 
of unbelief and doubt that seek to undermine that faith. And so you have various degrees, which is being assaulted constantly from various angles with attacks of unbelief. And so we recognize that while we're understanding this description of faith as the substance of things hoped for, we realize that in the experience of the believer, there is a growing up into greater and greater faith. And with that, a growing confidence and in a sense, uh, a growing, a growth in our experience of giving present living existence to things that are, that are hoped for. You say, because there are those, some of you here, think to yourself, well, okay, that's faith and faith is the substance of things hoped for, but I don't, I don't have, I do not have that strong of faith. And you could be tempted to conclude, for some, wrongly, that you therefore have no faith. And that's a misstep for some. After all, it's not how much faith you have that unites you to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is the genuineness of saving faith. The least amount of genuine saving faith unites a soul brings them into union with the Lord Jesus Christ as much as great faith. Now, having said that, small faith results in small comfort. Little faith results in little fruitfulness. No one is ever to take refuge presumptuously under the notion of minimal faith. The Lord calls us to great faith and to strong faith and to growing faith, and, and so on and so forth. Well, how is it that we grow in faith? How is it that the faith as the substance of things hoped for can be increased, strengthened, quickened within our own hearts and in our own experience and so on? How is it that a person even comes by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to uh, saving faith? And we recognize from what we've already heard this morning, it's never without the word. It's never without the Holy Scriptures. And it's always from the word to the faithfulness of God, to the sight of God and of Christ himself. And so for those of you who are unconverted, you come under the ministry of God's word, you hear about the necessity of faith. We're going to hear more in time to come about the reprehensible wickedness, the evil of evils of unbelief in due course. Here we're hearing about the glory, the luster, the beauty, the, the, the wonder of genuine saving faith. What is it? How is it that the sinner comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we recognize, as we saw earlier, that it's a gift of God and it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit and so on. But what means does he, he bring this about? It's through the word. It's through the preaching of the gospel. It's through the promises. It's you with your Bible and your, 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 your face buried in the book. It is looking to the promises where the Lord promises, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. All who come unto me, I will by no means cast out. Look unto me, all ye the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. 
Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest and a multitude more. It's coming to those promises. And then it's, it's laying hold of them, isn't it? It's laying hold of them, feeding upon those promises, assimilating the promises, absorbing the promises, seeing the God who has promised, who he is and what he does, that he is willing and able to save to the uttermost all who come to him, that he bends his divine ear to the cry of humble, broken, contrite sinners who are covered in the muck of their own wretchedness. He hears the cry in order to snatch them as brands from the fire, to bring them out of the miry pit of clay, to set their feet upon a rock and to put a new song in their mouth. This is who God is. He is a God who saves. He is a God who is invincible in his ability and power to save. Poor, helpless, hell-deserving sinners like me and like you. And the sinner comes and, and lays hold upon these promises, on the the overtures of God that come to us in the gospel and feeds upon them, assimilates them, in order that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we might be brought under the experience of the power of these transforming truths in our lives. Well, what about the believer? The believer goes on in the same vein. The believer comes back to the book and stays in the book and is immersed in the book and is looking to behold the glory of God through the mirror, the glass of the word, and is drawing and feeding and assimilating and absorbing and experiencing the power of these truths put to life in our, in our, in our own souls, thereby communicating the first fruits of the promises to us, right? Thereby giving us a, the living reality of what is promised. These are promises that are absorbed by faith so that, so that faith lays hold of the word even of things in the future that are yet hoped for. And these things are so real and so potent that our heart is transformed by them and that we come into the living experience and power of them and they begin to mold and shape us so that we live as if it was already done. The first fruits are in our mouth, the sweetness of it, the savor of it, the delight in it, all those things that are hoped for and the, the, the anticipation gives an expectation comes with power into our souls. We can almost see it and hear it and taste it and feel it and experience it ourselves now under the power of these things, right? Faith is giving us substance in the things, the substance of the things that are hoped for, but also it begins to transform us as we saw in verse 13. We live as if they're so. You say, okay, pastor, well, you're talking about the influence that it has upon us, correct? We're talking about, you know, giving present existence to things that are in the future. That's correct. What does that look like? Besides verse 13, what does that mean? What's that going to, how is that going to manifest? How is the exercise of faith as the substance of things hoped for going to manifest itself in the Christian's own experience 
and in their life. Well, the Christian comes to the Word of God, and the Word of God tells them, tells you that God himself is absolutely sovereign, as we were hearing on Wednesday. That every drop of water that fell on your windshield when you were driving to church this morning, he's the one who created the drop. He's the one who guided the drop from the clouds. He's the one who marked the spot, where it would go, what it would do, and so on and so forth. Everything is like that. Everything in the whole world, the whole universe is like that. God is absolutely sovereign in all that he is and all that he does. And he promises nothing is going to happen to you but what he has willed. And he promises that all that he has willed will be good. You can check a little mental box and affirm that truth. But you haven't exercised your soul in faith yet. For the living reality and existence of that truth to be brought home into your life. What's that going to do to your worries about tomorrow? What's that going to do about all the fears and forebodings that we carry in the back of our hearts about what the future holds? What if this in a few months' time? What if this other thing is a part of what the Lord has in his plan for the year to come? The Christian can live today in such full confidence that nothing's going to happen that he hasn't willed and that everything he willed will be good to be liberated from those fears, to be set free from them, to be able to walk in the fear of God and the consolation of his Holy Spirit. We come to the word of God and we say that we believe that sin is most heinous. We believe that it is most tameous and that it deserves the Lord's just indignation. Faith is the substance leads you to ask questions like, do I hate it? If I believe that it is a most heinous evil, do I fear it? Do I shun it? Do I run like my pants are on fire from it? Do I go to war with it? Am I absolutely unsettled and discontent unless it's being killed? You say that you believe that, the, that you will stand, that you personally, you specifically, you by yourself, you believe that you're going to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you will be singled out amongst the sea of all of the sons of Adam and you will be brought before his bar of justice and you will have to give an account and so on and so forth. And you affirm that Christ will come and you affirm the judgment of the last day. The question is, have you run for refuge? Your orthodoxy testifies against you. For those of you who are unconverted, have you run for refuge in the Savior? right here and right now because of your absolute confidence in what is yet coming, most surely coming. You say that you believe that the world is empty, that the world is perishing, that the world is not our home, that the world does not provide the things that our souls desire and so on and so forth. Are you consumed with it? 
Are you consumed with possessions and money and your job and everything else? Is this what causes your, your world to spin? Are you consumed with these things? Or do you really believe what the Bible says about the nature of this world? You believe that the Bible says that God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. What about those particular needs? The specific ones, not all the ones that you easily nod and recognize, but the ones that you have difficult unshouldering, the ones you're most worried about. Do you believe God will supply all your needs? Are you so confident? Do you have the substance of things hoped for that what is yet to come? Grace that's needed, all of the strength that's needed, the wisdom that's needed, the temporal and physical provisions that are needed, defense against the devil that's needed, whatever else is going to be needed. God, you are so confident that the Lord will supply it. You live in the present as if it were true. You say that you believe that God answers prayer. Is the secret place neglected? You believe that God answers prayer, that he hears and does according to his own will. If you believed that as you ought, to the degree that you ought, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything on this planet to keep you from the secret place. You say that you believe in Christ's coming. Are you watching, waiting, longing, and keeping your lamps trimmed? in preparation for it. You believe in eternal inheritance, everything we've been hearing about in Hebrews and will hear. You believe that God rewards his people and he does so with opulence, that we can't even begin to think or imagine what he has in store for his people, that he's given an inheritance, an eternal inheritance that is during, that is beyond your wildest imaginations. You believe in an eternal inheritance and in the rewards of God's people. How does it reflect in the investment of your time, energy, service, possessions, and so on and so forth. I'm answering your question. What influence does this have? For faith to be the substance of things hoped for. For it to give a living reality, existence, power in the present regarding what is yet to come. It changes everything. It transforms everything. It influences everything. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves all of us, you and me alike. It leaves us, if you're in a state of grace, with the prayer that you have prayed if you're a Christian a thousand times. I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I believe, help thou mine unbelief, or better yet, the prayer of the disciples, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, increase our faith. As we venture out into Hebrews 11, that really is the heart cry, isn't it? As we tiptoe our way into Hebrews 11, our desire is to go through this chapter and come out the other side with God having answered that petition, the increase of our faith. Let's stand together for prayer.
Lord our God in heaven, great indeed is thy faithfulness. Thy faithfulness reaches into the highest heavens. Thou art a God who is faithful in all things at all times. And a God who has given to us promises which are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, unbreakable, unbudgeable, infallible promises. O Lord, give us to see and know, indeed, to experience something more and more of faith as the substance of things hoped for. Do increase our faith. Look, O Lord, upon those who have no faith, who are covered head to toe in unbelief, inside and out, and grant that they might be roused, given such gifts, and brought to see and lay hold of the Redeemer. We ask, O Lord, give us these things, faith and the increase of faith, knowing that the great works of God are these, that we might believe that the Lord Jesus Christ indeed is the Christ, and that thou hast sent him. And so gather glory to thine own name, through faith and the fruit of faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.